morning. morning. Happy 4th of July weekend. Though, is it 4th of July weekend? It's on a Wednesday this year, so I'm not really sure whether or not this weekend or next weekend. So if we say happy 4th of July next week too, don't be surprised. Speaking of 4th of July, I've been on Eagle Watch the last few weeks. We've seen bald eagles flying around near our office. And one of my coworkers even got a video of the eagles over at the spillway at Ocalo Lake. And Lord willing, my family and I plan on attending the fireworks show at that same spillway on Wednesday. And I was geeking out about this the other night at dinner. And I said, wouldn't it be amazing if the fireworks show is going off and eagles are flying over? And my son, ever the realist, decided to rain on my parade and pointed out that no eagle would be dumb enough to fly into a fireworks show. But I'm still, I'm still hopeful. In all seriousness, um, we, uh, those of us who are Christians who live in America, we are first citizens of the kingdom of God. I want to be very, very clear about that. That being said, we enjoy great freedoms and incredible blessings in this country. And so I just want to say happy Independence Day to you. With that, let's go ahead and dive into the text this morning. If you would, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to be, we're going to cover Isaiah 52 verses 13 through all the way through the end of chapter 53. So Isaiah 52 verse 13. Read along with me. Behold, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his wounds Uh, And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered 
that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled by the experience of worship that we've already had this morning. We've sung songs offering praise to you for who you are, for what you've done. We've confessed our sins to you. We've cried out to you, lifting up our needs, knowing that we are incapable of meeting those needs. And Father, we lift up another one to you now again. We pray knowing that our hearts and minds are blinded by our sin that in the prison of our own sin, we are completely incapable of hearing Your Word, learning Your Word, knowing Your Word, and applying Your Word. And so, Father, we pray that the Spirit would come now, that the Spirit would speak through the preaching of Your Word to open the hearts and minds of those of us who hear this text preached, that we might believe in Jesus, believe in what He's done for us, and that we might go and live out the mission to which He's called us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 8, 26-40 gives us an account of Philip. And the angel of the Lord comes to Philip and tells him to head south to the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, this is in the desert, but when an angel of the Lord comes and tells you to go, it's a good idea to listen. So he goes, and he finds there something a little odd. He finds an Ethiopian man in a chariot, an official of the Ethiopian queen's court, and the man is reading from the book of Isaiah. Luke tells us that this man had come to Jerusalem to worship and that he was a eunuch. He was probably a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel but hadn't fully converted. So Philip, led by the Holy Spirit, he goes up to the man and he asks him if he understands what he's reading. And Philip joins the man and they read together from Isaiah 53. And the eunuch then asks Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Acts 8.35 Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. And that's what we're here to do today. We're going to look at Isaiah 52 and 53 and find in it the good news about Jesus. This book, Isaiah, written 
700 years before Christ was born, finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And that reality has profound ramifications for each one of us in this room. Last time I preached from Isaiah chapter 42, and we took that opportunity to go through and look at some of the ways that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies in Isaiah. Sometimes it's explicit. The author of whichever New Testament book will say something like, and Jesus did this to fulfill such and such prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Sometimes it's implicit, where the things said about the servant in Isaiah are clearly embodied in the person and in the actions of Jesus. So we're going to do some of that today, and I think you're going to see that this text takes it up a notch to a completely different level of fulfilled prophecy, even from what we saw in Isaiah 42. The prophecies, both explicit and implicit, are very clearly about Jesus. Again, 700 years before Jesus was born. So, good news. We're going to hear the good news about Jesus. We have a word for this good news, and that word is gospel. You take that fancy Greek word from which we get our word gospel, and it simply means good news. There's a way that I want us to break it down today, though, to understand the gospel, to try to understand it in its depth. So I want us to take four things, and these will be the four points of the sermon. So if you're a note taker and and you're type A and you've got to get the points of the sermon, these are the four points. So write this down. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. We're going to unpack each of these from the Bible, focusing particularly on Isaiah 52 and 53. All right, so let's start with God. What do we know about God from Scripture? Well, (laughs) that's a big question with lots and lots of answers, but we're going to focus on a few of the most important things, at least within the context of this sermon. So, number one, or if you want to call it... uh, Point one, sub-point A, so 1A, God is creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That tells us quite a lot about God. It tells us that at one point, there was nothing except for God, and he brought into existence everything else. He created everything, and he created it out of nothing. That also tells us a lot about God's power. I personally can't create anything out of nothing. Certainly, you would say the same. So, point B, under God. God is holy. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He's holy. He's perfect. He's set apart. He is in a class by Himself. And this is a bigger deal than we sometimes admit. You remember back when we covered Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim called out and said about God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the late R.C. Sproul once said, The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he's merely holy or even holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Not, uh, the Bible never says that God is love, love, love or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, 
holy, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? God is set apart. He is morally pure. He is unique in his holiness, and his holiness is a big deal. C. God is powerful. Look in Isaiah 53, verse 10. We see the will of the Lord in action. It was the will of the Lord, the verse says. We'll get to what exactly that action was in a minute. But the point is that God is the one acting in His power to bring forth His will. And God's will, it's not like your will or my will. I can say to my wife, I will that you cook my favorite meal. And she will say, I will show you the way to the pantry, right? I have a will, but I don't have the power to make that will a reality. God does not have that same limitation. Sometimes we talk about God's will as if it's something that we can defy. This is a much bigger discussion, but let me say that I'm not a real big fan of this idea. I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that he is 100% in control. I believe that if he wills it, it happens. And what happens, he willed it. I also believe that this is scriptural. And we see glimpses of this in Isaiah 53. Not only do we see the will of the Lord in action in verse 10, but we see it in verse 6. The Lord is the actor here. Verse 1, we see the arm of the Lord, which is the power of God in action. He's acting to carry out his will. We can spend the next week coming up with a more robust and comprehensive theology of God, but for the purposes of today, we're going to stick with this light treatment that God is creator, God is holy, and God is powerful. Maybe you hear these attributes of God and you think, no, I don't think so. Maybe you don't see how a holy God could sovereignly preside over a creation in which such bad things happen. People suffer. Natural disasters happen. It's a much bigger topic, but let me say respectfully, if we respond that way, it takes a lot of arrogance to do so, to question God. Paul in Romans 9, verse 20, says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Will what is created say to its creator, Why have you made me this way? God is our powerful creator. He does as he wills. That is reality. We can fight against it, or we can take comfort in the sovereignty of a loving God. Speaking of man, point two, let's talk about man. Remember, God, man, Christ, response. So man, first, we know that the God who created us, he made us in his image. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We are made in the image of God to glorify God. But there's a problem. 
Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The image of God in which we were made, it's still there, but it's marred. It's soiled. It's not what it was originally created to be. So what happened? We were created good, but we've all gone astray. Isaiah 53.10 assumes our guilt. Isaiah 53.5 tells us we're full of transgressions and iniquity, but why? Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mankind, we had our shot and we blew it. The people of God, Israel, they had their shot and they blew it too. Last time I preached, I mentioned that in some cases where Isaiah mentions the servant, he's talking about the nation of Israel. They were the servant, God's servant, and they blew it too. Another servant had to come and pick up where they could not succeed. We're sinners. No one has to tell us this, right? For starters, sin and its effects are all around us. Every murder, every crime, every social injustice, all product of sin. Every earthquake that kills thousands, every forest fire sparked by lightning that displaces people from their homes, every hurricane that floods a major city and causes billions of dollars in damage, all products of sin, all of those so-called natural disasters and all of the man-on-man Violence is sin perpetrated by one human upon another. It's all the product of the fall. And those natural disasters, they're not natural at all. They're unnatural. It was never meant to be that way. We were made in the image of God, but all we, like sheep, have gone astray. No, no one has to tell us that we're sinners. We see the evidence of sin all around us. But maybe you, maybe you hear that and you think, okay, sure, there's sin in the world, but me personally, I'm not that bad. I'm not one of those really terrible sinners, uh, a Hitler, if you will. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I'm a good person. Are you really? What does the Bible have to say to that? You haven't murdered anyone. Great. You've kept the sixth commandment. But what did Jesus say about that commandment? Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Interesting. So the standard is more than just whether or not you've actually committed murder. It's about what's in your heart. What about adultery? You haven't committed adultery? Great. You've kept the seventh commandment. But what does Jesus say about adultery? Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You've heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the standard that Jesus puts forth is not about the physical act of adultery. It's about the heart. So how many of you have been angry? I've been angry today. It's like 11 something. And I can tally up how many times I've been angry today. Kids, the great sanctifiers. Um, How many of you have ever lusted? You don't have to raise your hand for that one, but let's be real. Let's be honest about these heart conditions that Jesus is revealing. And these, this is two examples. I mean, we're just scratching the surface with those. There was a group of folks in the Bible who obeyed the letter of the law, but failed to uphold the spirit of the law. They failed to consider the heart. They were the Pharisees. Jesus did not like the Pharisees. What does he tell us about them? Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So don't be like the letter of the law following Pharisees. So we've seen in Matthew 5, failing to keep the spirit of the law leads to hell. Hell. We have a problem. We are headed to hell. God is holy. We are not. We've all sinned. Every single one of us. And what does that lead to? Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Eternal death. Hell. Romans 1.19 tells us that what that God has shown us who He is. Who has believed? Isaiah asked in chapter 53, verse 1. In our sin, no one has believed. And left up to our own self-effort, we will sin over and over and over again. No, you're not that bad. You're not a sinner. You're just someone who sins sometimes. It turns out that Maybe we don't assess our own sin severely enough. Don't get me wrong, we're all really thankful when people can keep their impulse to murder in check. But any sin, any sin separates us from a perfect, holy God. I promise you that however severely you assess your own sin, reality is far worse. Your sin is far greater far more damaging than you realize. Maybe you give yourself a C or a D. You have an F, a zero, in fact. So God is our powerful, holy creator, and we are his fallen, sinful creatures. But Christ, God, man, Christ response. Let's talk about Christ. Let's Talk about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Isaiah tells us that the servant wasn't particularly impressive. Isaiah 53 verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
The idea of a root out of dry ground is the idea of an unwanted root, almost like a weed. So I have a tree in my yard that gets these little saplings down around the bottom and I'm constantly pulling them out. That's the kind of thing that Isaiah is talking about here. That's how Israel felt about the servant. This may also be a callback to Isaiah 11.10 when Jesus is referred to as the root of Jesse. So he was something that was unwanted and he had no form or majesty or beauty. He was undesirable. Some folks have even tried to extrapolate from this and say that, well, Jesus was ugly or he wasn't much to look at, but that's not really the point. The point is Jesus wasn't what the Jews wanted or expected. The Jews of Jesus's day were under the thumb of the Romans and they wanted a Messiah who was a conquering warrior to come in and free them from their Roman oppression. They failed to recognize that their true oppressor was their own sin. Of course, that didn't happen. Jesus didn't come in and free them for the Romans. Jesus came as a baby, grew up from humble origins, and was crucified on a cross. And the Jews could not handle that. Their Messiah killed as a common criminal? No way. Not only was Jesus himself not what they expected, but his kingdom was far different than that for which they were hoping. In Matthew 5, Jesus preaches, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. That's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, Blessed are the Pharisees. Blessed are the law keepers. But that's not what they got. They got a servant who Philippians 2, 6-8 says that even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. They wanted a Messiah. They got God himself. But their expectations meant that they couldn't be satisfied even with God himself in the flesh. I don't sense surprise about this in Isaiah 53. What I mean is, of course the Jews weren't impressed with Jesus. If they were looking for someone who's impressive by worldly standards, he was a nobody. He was from nowhere, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We see in Scripture. They were looking in the wrong place, and they were looking for the wrong thing. And in their sin, they were predisposed to miss who he actually was. But come, the servant did. And in the person of Jesus, he died for our sins, for you and for me, and even for those Jews. Isaiah 53.10 says that the Lord put him to grief. Again, notice who the actor is here. It's the Lord. And he made an offering for guilt. 52.15 says he sprinkled many nations. The Old Testament law demanded an offering, a sacrifice. Before the servant, before Jesus, 
This was a ritualistic process where the priest would regularly offer up blood sacrifices of animals to cover the sins of the people. The sprinkling of blood in particular was done to cover the priest to make them holy. But the servant, he became the offering himself. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Blood must be shed. Our sin demands that there be a sacrifice. And Jesus made that sacrifice once and for all that we might be purified. And that's what Isaiah and the author of Hebrews are saying. Isaiah 53, 7. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. For the Jews... They're hearing this. They're hearing guilt guilt offering. They're hearing sprinkle. They're hearing lamb to the slaughter. The Old Testament sacrifice, that system would have been ringing in their ears as they're hearing this out of the book of of Isaiah. But he didn't just go. Jesus went willingly, silently, not opening his mouth. 53.10 tells us that it was the will of, of the Lord to crush him. God did this. It was his sovereign plan all along. Matthew 26, 39, Jesus praying to God the Father, he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus willingly submits to the will of the Father who turned him over to death. Romans 5.19 tells us that this obedience is what bought our righteousness. All of this was for our sin. Isaiah 53.4 He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You recall from Isaiah 42 I pointed out that all of the healing that Jesus did, wasn't, it wasn't for its own sake, but to point forward to a day when death and disease are finally going to be completely eradicated. Matthew eight seventeen tells us that Jesus healed to fulfill this verse. Isaiah 53, 4. And in verse 5, it says, uh, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was our sin that held him there on the cross. And then look at verse 6. Because we sinned, because we went astray, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8. He was stricken for the transgressions of the people. We know it wasn't for his sin. We've already established that he was without blemish we know from the testimony of his life that he never sinned. And we see that 
here again in Isaiah 53 verse 9. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet they made his grave with the wicked. You're supposed to read this and you're supposed to be outraged by it. He was crucified as a criminal, yet he was innocent. And of course, we see this in multiple accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. But just one example, John 19.4, where Pilate, who would eventually have Jesus crucified, said, I find no guilt in him. This should have resonated with the Jews who were seeking to have him killed. They should have been thinking, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53. 53 verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. Not only was he counted a criminal and executed as one, he became one of us. God came and he put on flesh. God became a man. I know I say this all the time, and I'm going to keep saying it. This is the most controversial and the most important thing that we believe as Christians. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Our deliverance was not possible without the incarnation. It was necessary that Jesus partake of flesh and blood. It was necessary that he be numbered with the transgressors in order to save them, in order to save us. Christ is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But he did more than suffer. He was exalted. Chapter 52, verse 13, look. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Christian scholars agree that the taken away here likely refers to Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. He suffered for our transgressions, absolutely, but that suffering was the very means of his exaltation. Listen again from Philippians 2 in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And what is that therefore? Therefore, remember we already read Philippians 2 uh, verse 8, which said that he was obedient to the point of death on a cross. That obedience, that death on a cross led to his exaltation. And what did that exaltation accomplish? Isaiah 53 verse 11, many will be accounted righteous. Verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Again, why? Keep reading. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It was necessary that he come in the flesh. It was necessary 
that he die in order that he might be exalted. But what are the spoils he's dividing here? What is the portion that we see here that he's doling out? Christ's reward is our reward. Because he was resurrected, we can be resurrected. And because he was exalted, we can be exalted. Chapter 52, verse 13 says that he'll act wisely. And act wisely is probably not the best way to translate this. Think of it more that he'll prosper or he'll succeed in his task. 53, uh, verse 11 tells us that he will be satisfied. He succeeded in death and he accomplished his goal. He knew this on the cross. As he's hanging on the cross, he said, it is finished. Right before he died, he knew that his death completed the work that he had come to accomplish. Jesus was satisfied with his accomplishment and with his own obedience. Continuing in verse 12. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You could preach an entire sermon on the beauty of that last bit of verse 12. He makes intercession for the transgressors. His work accomplished, the suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah, sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Priest, intercede on behalf of other people. To intercede means simply to request on behalf of. Hebrews 7, 23-25 says, The former priests were many in number, and because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is regularly interceding on our behalf. When God the Father, holy and righteous, looks at us, Jesus intercedes. God looks on us and he sees Jesus. He doesn't see our sin. He sees the blood shed, sprinkled, sacrificed on our behalf. Our salvation is as secure as the length of Jesus's priesthood. And Hebrews 7 tells us that unlike the earthly priest who died, our heavenly priest, Jesus, will always live to make intercession for us. His priesthood is forever. Consequently, our salvation is forever. Maybe you hear about this suffering servant, Jesus, and you think, I don't know, I'm, I'm not so sure he's the Savior. Maybe uh, like the Jews prophesied in about, about in Isaiah 53, 4, you esteem him stricken, right? You look at Jesus and you think, well, he was just a criminal who was executed. He was a political dissident. He upset the wrong people. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's what the History Channel will tell you. Jesus upset the Jews. The Romans didn't want to revolt, so they crucified Jesus for the Jews. Jesus didn't intend to be crucified, right? That's the historical narrative around this account. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own 
accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And to Pontius Pilate, the one who sentenced him to death, Jesus in John chapter 19 verse 11 says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. When he says from above, he's not talking about Caesar. He's saying that Pilate had the authority to kill Jesus because it was given him by God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And Jesus willingly laid down his life. Maybe you find this hard. Maybe you hear about this God who willingly sacrificed his son and you find it barbaric. There's, a, there's something to address there, um, and I'm, I'm not going to do that today. But let me humbly submit to you that if you hear the clear teaching of Scripture and your response is, no way, that's not true, or you begin to look for loopholes, if you do that, you are no different than the Jews who saw Jesus and said, that's not my Savior. The Jews had expectations about how the Messiah would come, what He would do, and God turned those expectations on their head. Perhaps God, through His Word, is turning your expectations on their head. He certainly has for me. In the, uh, <laughs> the theologically astute Will Ferrell movie, Talladega Nights, there's a scene where the, uh, the main characters are sitting around the dinner table and Will Ferrell begins to say grace and he prays to baby Jesus. And his wife objects to this and he pushes back and he says, I like the Christmas Jesus best. And then his friend speaks up and says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party so I like my Jesus to party. And we see this scene and we laugh and we roll our eyes. It's ridiculous. But why is it ridiculous? Because Jesus demands to be taken on his own terms. You can't make God or Jesus in your own image. It's the other way around. We are made in God's image. We don't get to read what the scripture clearly says about Jesus and rebel against it saying there's no way that's true. We submit to what the word of God says. If Jesus doesn't meet our expectations then we need to adjust our expectations. God, the holy, powerful creator made us man in his image but we all sinned and messed up everything. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and intercede on our behalf forever. God, man, Christ response. So in closing, let's look at the response. In our sin, we despise and reject Him. That's how we respond. Just as Isaiah 53.3 says, John 12, 38 tells us that anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is actually fulfilling Isaiah 53, 1, which says, who has believed what he has heard? Not everyone. Paul is clear in Romans 10 that God only calls those 
who hear the gospel, but that not everyone who hears the gospel is called. Paul even uses Isaiah 53.1 to make that point. So one response is to continue in sin and unbelief all the way to hell. But we see the right response, the good response here in Isaiah 52 verse 15. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Kings shut their mouth because they are in awe of Jesus, both the suffering that he endured and the exaltation which he received. We are in awe of Jesus so that, Philippians 2, 10 through 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We respond in belief. We respond in obedience to Christ. Our brother, the Ethiopian eunuch, responded obediently. Philip shared the gospel with him from Isaiah 53, and Acts 8.36 tells us that as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized. I'm not going to ask you to get baptized today, but let me ask you this. You've heard the gospel preached from Isaiah 53. The God who created you, His holiness and His power are on display in His Word. Your sin has been laid bare. The suffering servant, Jesus Christ, died to save you from those sins. The severity of your sin is trumped only by the love shown you in Christ's sacrifice. How will you respond? You have heard the good news about Jesus. What prevents you from believing? Let's pray.